Father, we thank you for your word and your love, and we pray, please, as we grapple with this uh, very strange chapter of the Bible, you'll help us to understand, but even more, to take comfort from what you're saying and to have the courage to live it out in obedience to you. Amen. Well, every choice that we make has consequences. All choices have consequences, whether they're big choices, small ones, moral ones, or just superficial ones. There's always outcomes for the decisions that we make. Now, sometimes the consequences are highly predictable and just the thing that we want. I decide to take up jogging and to eat better and my body starts to change shape a bit and uh, shrink, not as much as I'd want. Uh, In fact, the assistant minister told me that my butt looks smaller uh, this morning. There you go. Uh, Maybe that makes sense. Yeah, that's kind of an... A happy outcome, I suppose. Uh, um, Reardon takes up jogging and three weeks later his knees are shot. Uh, Expected outcome? I don't know. (laughs) It's not what he was hoping for. Uh, uh, I'm not sure why my knees aren't shot and his knees are because he's much lighter anyway. Sometimes the consequences of our choices are really devastating such as the case with child sexual abuse. I mean, there's, there's no good to come out of that. But sometimes the, the consequences are, are unexpectedly bad. Sometimes they're unexpectedly disastrous. In 1912, the Titanic sank and 1,500 people died, uh, mainly because of the lack of lifeboats on board. Uh, they didn't have enough for everyone. And so in 1915, as a direct result of that incident, the US government made a new law that any ship over 100 tonnes had to carry enough lifeboats uh, to fit every passenger who happened to be on board. That seems like a pretty good law, doesn't it? Um, The first boat to be launched after the new law was passed was this ship here. Hang on, I'm going to click that to green. It was this ship here, the SS Eastland. Uh, And so they had to put extra lifeboats on from what they planned, and they put them, as you can see from the photo, on the roof. As the boat launched, just metres out from the moorings, uh, fully loaded with passengers on a maiden voyage, the ship tilted wildly, took on water, and rolled over in just 20 feet of water, killing 800 people. There it is. That's not what the shipbuilders or the lawmakers intended. And all because the ship was now unstable because of the extra weight of the lifeboats on the roof. Unexpected consequence, disastrous consequence. Should they have known that that's what was going to happen? Well, probably. Uh, The physics is pretty obvious in retrospect, but no one thought to redesign the boat to cope with the load and put them further down or whatever it might happen to be. No one had considered it. In Genesis 13 that we looked at last week, a man named Lot was asked to make a choice. And unbeknownst to him, that choice he made was going to have unexpected and disastrous consequences just like that. The choice he had to make was seems pretty basic and, and not so disastrous. That is, which part of the land is he going to take for his flocks and herds? It was a choice offered by his uncle Abram because they'd prospered so much as farmers in this new land they'd moved to that it was now impossible for them to stick together and have the land that are on support both their herds together and all their people. And so Lot looked around. He had to make this choice uh, after Abram said, well, you go one way, I'll go the other, you pick. He looked around and he chose for himself the best bit, Uh, you know, obvious choice. Uh, A stretch of land in the Jordan River Valley 
that was described in chapter 13 as being just like the garden of God. It's like the, the garden of Eden. It's so lush and beautiful and wonderful. And why wouldn't he pick that best bit? But it was a choice that would lead him directly to the issues that he faced in chapter 14. But before we come to what happened, you might be wondering, why, why is it that we even need to worry about this kind of stuff? In fact, why, why did God include in his book of life Genesis chapter 14? I mean, we know that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, rebuking, uh, you know, tr- tr- rebuking, correcting, uh, teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so it can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But you get chapters like this and you think, really? Uh, <laughs> Uh, couldn't just God have skipped over from chapter 12 where he, he's made these incredible promises to Abraham uh, about the family he'd one day have and the blessings that would come to the world at war with God and just jump straight over to where that happens? I mean, why have this weird interlude? Sure, it's a great action story if you can get past all the names and places, but, but what are you supposed to do with it? I mean, has anyone ever heard, and maybe this is better a better question for the back half of the room, uh, has anyone ever heard a sermon on Genesis chapter 14 before? Uh, uh, well, this morning, yes, yes that, that doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've got two very senior retired clergymen at 8 o'clock and both of them after 8 o'clock this morning said, there's no way we'd ever preach on that. <laughs> uh, in fact, I looked around the, uh, the preaching catalogue of some of the well-known preachers around about in all kinds of denominations, and uh, they have Genesis 12, 13, 15. <laughs> no, no one preaches, preachers are scared of it. Um, well, not today. And I reckon when we're done, you'll be very glad that you came tonight. And you'll actually be very challenged by it as well. But before we figure it out, let's just run quickly through the events to get our heads around what's happening because we've got to get past all those big names and stuff like that. The first half of Genesis 14 takes a big step back from the story of Abram into the realm of international politics and international affairs. It's almost as if in chapter 13 you're looking at Google Maps at a bunch of a patch of farmland and someone then hits the zoom out button and all of a sudden you're looking at the entire Middle East. And what's happening in the Middle East in, uh, in Abram's time? Well, surprise, surprise, there's a war going on. Uh, have a look at the map there. Uh, there's an alliance of four nations we're told about in verse 1, which are all up where modern-day Iran and Iraq are. <coughs> Uh, it's where Babylonian uh, the Empire would turn up. It's where the Assyrian Empire would turn up. It's that kind of region of the world. Uh, it's, and this is the first real um, massive empire. And it's all under the leadership of someone called Ketaleoma of Elam. Elam is the country where the arrow is on the right. You can see it if you've got good eyes on the map there. And this alliance, this empire, decides it's going to do some annexing of some more territory. And so they decide, well, where are they going to try and annex? Well, just like today, uh, they try and annex the land of Canaan, where modern-day Israel is, which at this point is made up of five very small nations. But even standing together, these five nations can't stop the imperial might of Kedileoma and his allies who just march in and conquer it all. And, and for 12 years, they are subject 
to their rule and everything's quiet until the five nations decide that they're going to rebel against their oppressors. But it all goes horribly wrong. Instead of gaining their independence, Ketelioma's armies come back and they conquer even more territory. That's what the section in the middle is all about. They come down that far side of uh, the Jordan River, take out the nations on their way through, sweep across to near Egypt and then start moving up from behind back into Israel, or the land of Canaan, and to these five small nations who are rebelling. And they come in and they absolutely smash them. So badly are the five armies of the small nations beaten that every rebel soldier is either slaughtered in battle or they're killed in the retreat uh, because they're driven into tar pits and they drown. And the few who are left over flee into the hills and they're, they're, the armies are never seen or heard from again. At which point, Kedalioma's armies run right and they completely sack the land. And so you get to verse 11. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. That's the first half of the chapter. Now, why does all that matter? Who cares about that? Well, it matters because of someone who's just happened to have made the choice to move in, Abram's nephew Lot. Because the land he happened to choose, the good land, the land like Eden, was was in the territory of Sodom and Gomorrah, And so when the rebellion's crushed and the nations are plundered, Lot's taken captive along with all the other non-combatants and they're captured as slaves and they're all carted off into slavery back up in in the big empire. That's where they're heading to. Well, the terrible family news comes to Lot's uncle Abram and he decides he's going to mount a daring rescue. I think most of us would just go, uh, let's pray and God, please do something for Lot. But, you know, he says, let's go get him. Uh, And so you pick it up at verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobart, not Hobart, that's Tasmania, but Hobart, north of Damascus, that's Syria, north of Israel. He recovered all the goods and he brought his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Now, I reckon if Tom Clancy had written Genesis chapter 14, we'd get a whole lot more details about the weapons that they used and the planning and the tactics and how they were going to storm from the left and the right. Uh, And if Matthew Riley had written the story, there'd be a whole lot more action scenes. Uh, There'd be, you know, and then Abram's personal guard leaped over with his sword and engulfed him and his guts played out and you know, splattered everyone around. That blinded the driver of the chariot and he drove off a cliff. And, you know, it'd be a lot more like that. But it's pretty, well, matter of fact. But even so, it's pretty astonishing when you think about it. It's astonishing because Abram's become so wealthy in just a little while in the land that he's got 318 men who can handle themselves in a fight to call on to go to war with. That's weird. That's his family servants. That's a pretty handy-sized mercenary force that you've got to protect your flocks of goats. Right? He's walking around with 318 armed men. But even so, what's 318 armed men compared to how many soldiers the invaders have, the armies of four combined nations that rule essentially the world? 
And so even though there's 318 of them, totally outgunned. But it's not just the, the numbers of troops that are astonishing. The lengths that Abram goes to are astonishing because he took his 318 men, he divided them up in a smart military manoeuvre and he attacked the kings all the way up past Dan to Hobart, north of Damascus. Now that is a long way from Hebron where Abram was living, which is down by the Dead Sea at the south of Israel. In fact, it's almost 225 kilometres that he chased the invading armies for to get his nephew back. Now that's about the distance from here to Canberra. And he did it all on foot through hostile territory where the armies of five kings have just died. <clears throat> it's not the kind of battle that's just settled in a day, right? He's not, hey guys, let's go get him and come back. This, this is weeks. Weeks of following them, tracking them, pursuing them, attacking them. He was absolutely committed to the rescue. That's astonishing, isn't it? <clears throat> and what's more, he wins. <laughs> and he doesn't just sneak in and get his nephew back if it was kind of some warm of, you know, Come, let's cut the barbed wire and get it. You know, he wins in such a way as to get back all the captives of all the ransacked nations, hundreds if not thousands of people, and all the loot of, as well, the loot from five, uh, five countries. It's an astonishing victory. But it doesn't end there because there's a twist. Because Abram's on his way back home with all the free captives and the spoils of war in tow and he's coming down the Jordan Valley, down, down the river, back towards Lot's place when out of the blue he's met by two people. One who's going to give him a blessing and one who's going to make him an offer. One of the men who comes isn't a real surprise, the, the king of Sodom. Obviously he's got an interest in what's happening. It's his stuff and his people who've been taken. But then absolutely out of nowhere, right after him, comes someone who's not involved at all, from a place that's not been mentioned, something not, someone not involved in any of this fighting, and his name is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And though he's got no bone to pick with Kedoleoma, he's got no skin in the game, he's got no dog in the fight, he's got no interest, well, he's got no involvement with Abraham, he comes out and he personally offers Abraham and his men food and wine, which, which they gladly take. And then even more importantly, as far as Abram's concerned, Melchizedek gives him a blessing. This, this great blessing from God is kind of a prayer. In fact, so happy is Abram to receive that blessing that in return, he gives Melchizedek 10% of the entire spoils of war. So it's not 10% of his personal wealth, of kind of the money he's making from his herds. It's 10% of the wealth of all the nations that he's just liberated. It's 10% of the wealth of five countries. Thanks for the bread and wine and the blessing. Here, get rich. <laughs> but while he's stoked to receive that blessing from Melchizedek, he's not about to accept the offer that the king of Sodom makes him. See that? See the offer in Abram's response in verse 21, the end of the chapter? The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people... But keep the goods for yourself. Now, think about that. That's 90% of the wealth of five nations. You keep it all, Abram. That's a pretty handy offer. What would you do? But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, 
They'll accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you'll never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I'll accept nothing but what my men have already eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, my allies, Anna, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Now, that's a pretty blunt refusal. It's a clear knockback of what might seem like a very generous offer, something that, that would have set Abram up as a real powerhouse in the region. I mean, if you've got 90% of the wealth of five nations, well, you could rule them all. So that's the events. What, what are we supposed to make of them? You know, it's, it's an interesting story, and especially when you see the maps and things, but what do you make of it? Did God put it here to help us understand how important families are? Uh, and that you should go to any lengths to protect them. Uh, uh, one writer on Genesis 14, uh, I was reading during the week, says this, when it comes to rescuing family members from the clutches of captivity, there's no distance too far to travel, no cost too great to expend. If a family member is enslaved to sin, we must do all we can to deliver them from captivity. Uh, uh, well, that, that may be true, but that's not what this is about. I think that's called clutching at straws. Well, so is it here so we can understand the importance of tithing to church? I mean, that's where most Christian bloggers and the very few pastors who dare to preach on Genesis 14 go with it. What you should do is give 10% of your income uh, to the offertory plate when it comes around a bit later tonight, okay? Because uh, that's what Abraham did. But while... Giving to church is a, is a great thing to do, and I hope you're doing it. It's a wonderful thing. In fact, it's an important thing to do. You know, and, and this is, uh, I think, well worth giving to if you want to invest your money in God's plans and purposes and some of the stuff that we're doing to get the gospel to the community. But that's not what this is about. Nor is it about how much to give to church. I mean, that's a long discussion, and maybe this has some relevance, but it's, you know, that, that's a long way from here to there. <laughs> So is it here to show us that if we have faith, like Abraham, God will always give us the victory in our lives? Victory over our sin, victory over our finances, victory over our health and over our sexuality. That's the kind of false teaching that comes from people like Joel Osteen, who's the leader of the biggest church in America. Right? In fact, that's his sermon. God wants to give you victory over your, over your health and over your relationships and... Uh, but they're trying to bribe people into the fold with unreal and unsubstantiated promises that God has not made. Uh, in fact, Hillsong last week, uh, Brian Houston's just come back from Canada with a new message. He's got a prophecy that you will get rich next year if you have the faith of Abraham. Right? That was last week's sermon. Right? It's astonishing. It's making Facebook... Well, dreams come true. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Know. Everyone's discussing it, but it's not true. They're not promises that God has made. Even the most faithful Christian is going to face difficulties and trials. And and guess what? They even come from the hand of God. God gives us trials and sufferings and difficulties to shape us and mould us and and make us something new. So, so what are we supposed to do with this? Uh, should we go down the Mormon line? I've, we've been studying cults in our Bible study by request. 
And we did Mormonism during the week. And it turns out Genesis 14 is their favourite chapter of the Bible. They have no other favourite chapters of the Bible, but Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, because you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What that means is you are going to be a priest, king and God who's going to run your own planet. And uh, you got, Yahweh is the God of this world, but he's the child of some other God, right? And his son, Jesus Christ, is now in the process of becoming God. And you can become God like Melchizedek too on your own planet. I mean, it's, it's whacked out. <laughs> what do we do with it? Well, I think the first thing we've got to do is realize something that's fundamentally important. It's a really fundamental, important concept, which is this. That scripture is the true interpreter of scripture. That is, the Bible itself tells you how to read the Bible. Okay? Uh, it gives you what you need. When people come up with all kinds of wacky way out stuff like the Mormons do, or they're clutching at straws because they don't know what else to do with it, or they use the Bible, even worse, to justify their evil like the Third Reich, they're, they're twisting the scriptures. You just can't make the scriptures say what you want to say, well, at least not legitimately. They're not listening to the Bible and letting it speak for itself. And in fact, the more you read the Bible, the more familiar you are with the whole, the whole thing, the more you, you get to understand how each of the parts fits. And, and the more you understand the various parts, the more you can understand the whole thing. It's kind of this cycle. But most of us, preachers included, get lazy. And we don't really do the hard work of connecting and thinking that we should. And, and it is hard work. I mean, that's the problem of the kind of daily bread, daily devotional kind of material. I mean, it's really good stuff. And if you're not doing any sort of quiet time, I'd go for that. Gives you, a, you know, a really good 10-minute start to the day. of just got a little Bible section, some thoughts for the day. But it doesn't do the kind of work that you need to do to integrate the scriptures and to say, okay, where, where is this going? And, and often misses out on the profound for the sake of the simple. So how does it do that? How does the scripture interpret scripture? How does the Bible teach you how to read the Bible? Well, here's two ways. I'm not sure if they're the only two, but, but these are the main two at least. The first way is by looking at the context. That is, no passage of Scripture, whatever it happens to be, comes in isolation. You've got to look before it and after it to see where you are in the argument, if it's like a letter in the New Testament, because it's a developing argument, or where you are in the story, if it's an Old Testament narrative like this. And the key to understanding is bound to be there somewhere in the context a second way scripture interprets scripture is when it directly refers back to other parts that you're reading and it starts to tell you what it is you're, you're seeing or tells you what it is you're supposed to be seeing. Now it might be a direct quote when the, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament quotes the Old Testament uh, and that's really handy because it, it really tells you, okay, this is what you should be noticing. Uh, but it could just be talking about the same issue, the same topic, and where one part might sound a bit ambiguous, you think, oh, does it mean this, does it mean that? Another part will often clarify it, so you go, oh, okay, it must be saying this because that's what the Bible's message on that topic is. And so when the Bible points back to the Bible, when it refers directly part to other parts, either quoting them or alluding to them, it's kind of like a plaque 
on a piece of art that explains the picture. Now, I don't know if you guys like art galleries. Anyone here? Anyone want to admit to that? Yeah, in yeah, Campbelltown? Uh, if you're going to go to an art gallery, I recommend, if you're a bogan like me, that you go to the Art Gallery of New South Wales because the pictures look like stuff, right? They're people and places and trees and things like that and often heads getting cut off or, you know, it might be, you know, statues of someone's head, you know, that kind of thing. Has anyone ever been to the contemporary of modern art at Circular Quay, right? It is a weird, weird place. You stand there looking at a brick on a chair or spots maybe on a canvas that could be painted in blood or something, you're not really sure. Um, and, and all these other people are staring at it going, hmm, hmm. And you, you, you join in and you're like, oh, yeah, hmm. Is it upside down? I, like, uh, and you, you wanted the secret? Read the plaque. Right? The plaque will at least give you a title, right? You know, uh, you know the American economy in disarray. And you go, oh, okay. And you look again. <laughs> and often it'll have a little explanation of why the artist painted it or what they were feeling at the time and stuff like that. And it's the interpretive key to what you're meant to be looking at, which might have confused you. So come back to the map for a second. We'll go to the big one. Who are all these people and places and nations and, and why do they matter? Well, the context tells us. But you'd have to pay careful attention to some really weird genealogies and the table of nations back in chapter 10 and to, to see some of the connections. See, Ketaleoma, he's the boss of the four king alliance. Where's he the king of? Back in verse 1. Sorry? Ketalama, he's like the second or third king listed on there. He's the king of Elam. There you go. Elam's a famous country, isn't it? Uh, all right, so, well, that matters because Elam was mentioned in the Table of Nations back in chapter 10. And it's mentioned there because they are the descendants of Shem. Who's Shem? Shem is Noah's good son the one who Noah blessed back in chapter 9 after saving him from a remarkably embarrassing incident where he got drunk and naked. What about Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies? Well, they're all descendants of who? They're descendants, if you go back to the Table of Nations in chapter 10, of a guy called Canaan. Canaan is the son of Ham. And Ham's significant because he's the wicked son of Noah who caused the embarrassing incident with his dad. In fact, who Noah, when he came up from his drunken stupor, cursed. So here, back in chapter 9 and verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son Ham had done to him, he said, Cursed be, not Ham, but cursed be Canaan, his, the grandson. The lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. And you get to chapter 14, 
And surprise, surprise, that curse actually means something. It's not accidental that the Shemites own the world and that all the Canaanite rebellions were bound to fail because they're cursed to be the slaves of Shem. But there's more to the context. I mean, you could, you could do some unhelpful things with that, but, but there's more to the context because in chapter 13, when Lot was asked to choose which part of the land he wanted for his flocks, there was more to it than just the fact that he picked the best bit, the land that was like the Garden of Eden for himself. In fact, come back to chapter 13 and verse 10. There's a commentary on it. Lot looked around. He's asked to make the choice. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the Garden of the Lord, the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Ooh, okay. Why might that be? It's not happened yet, and it's going to happen in chapter 19. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The whole region he chose might have been fantastic grazing land, but he specifically chose to move his tent right next to Sodom, which already by then was renowned for its depravity and evil. In fact, the king of Sodom is a guy named Bera back in verse 2 of chapter 14. And Bera, I mean, you've got to study Hebrew or be really good at Google for this. Um, he, Bera means son of evil. That's the king's name of Sodom. Not sure why his parents named him son of evil. Uh, I don't know. Anyone want to pick that for their child? Um, unless dad's name was just evil and then it makes sense. But um, So if you can excuse the pun, Abram's nephew threw his lot in with the people under God's curse who were living in such utter depravity and corruption that God was going to wipe them from the face of the earth. That's who he's chosen to go and live with. And he didn't go as a missionary to save them. He wasn't you know, trying to rescue them and help change them around or anything like that. He picked it because he thought he could get ahead in life there because it's the best land. He wasn't like his uncle who trusted God to look after him and who at every opportunity stops, as we pointed out last week, he stops everywhere he goes and builds an altar to the Lord because he's so pray, uh, filled with praise and thanksgiving for the way God has cared for him. Lot, at this point at least, is pretty godless. So he's called righteous into Peter. That's kind of weird. But um, he's godless at this point and he makes a bad choice and he has to live with the consequences. Should he have known better? Should he have known better like the builders of the SS Eastland should have known better? Well, I think use the land, but be careful who you associate with, right? But he doesn't even learn his lesson after he's saved because... He comes back, and this is the context going forward now, he moves back right, not near, the cent near Sodom, he moves right into the centre of the city of Sodom. He gives up the whole farming lark uh, after this. And there he's going to offer his two daughters to be raped by a gang of men. Right? His wife's going to die because she falls so in love with the depravity of the city that she can't bear to leave on the night that God said he's going to destroy it. And he barely escapes with his life and his daughters. 
and they get him drunk and have an incestuous relationship with him and get pregnant with two sons, Moab and Ammon, who are right old sorts. In fact, Moab and Ammon are going to become great nations in themselves who are Israel's mortal enemies. And so this has got devastating consequences that roll on and on for centuries afterwards. And that makes Abram's choice not to accept the spoils of war from the king of Sodom way more significant. See, it's not just that Abram doesn't want anyone else to be able to say, I made Abram rich. He doesn't want the king of Sodom to be able to say, I made Abram rich. He doesn't want the son of evil to say, I made Abram rich. He doesn't want to profit from evil. He's not going to make the same bad choice that Lot made and will make again. He's saying, I want no part of you. I want nothing from you. I don't want you to have any hold or claim over me. I might have rescued your stuff, but that wasn't for your benefit. I was just after my nephew who just happened to get the rest as well. If you want to learn from Abram's example some way, it's not about family loyalty. It's about loyalty to God in all of our choices. That is, you cannot take from the devil and think that God is going to be pleased. You can't live in evil and keep indulging your sins secretly and think that God's going to pat you on the back. Living as one of God's people, being someone who really trusts him, it's, it's a 24-7 affair. It's, it's all of life. It's, it challenges every decision that we're going to make. And we've got to be loyal to God in all of our choices. But there's something even more important than that going on here. Because it's not really just a moral story about you know, who's the better person to model yourself after, although that's true. Uh, because if we've been following the story closely, what's really happening here is that we're being introduced to someone who is far greater than Abraham. I mean, Abraham's great, and, and not just because of his elite band of mercenaries. I mean, there are, you know, half of the world's population claim that Abraham is their father or their spiritual father, right, at the moment, right? Th- three and a half billion people claim that. He's pretty great. Uh, but his greatness didn't come from himself. He didn't earn it. His greatness was, was gifted to him by God. You remember back to chapter 12 and the promise that God gave him. He said, I will make you, Abram, into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so you think about that. With Abraham, or Abram as he is here, here is a man through whom somehow God is going to pour out his blessings onto the whole world. That is a great man. This is the man through whom God's blessings are going to come to the nations. And yet he comes back from battle and he meets a man through whom, well, sorry, a man who brings God's blessing to him. Right? Abraham's the one who's going to bless the world, but there's someone who can bless Abraham. He is even greater than Abraham. In fact, that's what. The New Testament points out when it quotes Genesis chapter 14. That's what you should be noticing. How great Melchizedek is, because that's his name. Who is he? Well, his name is Melchizedek. And uh, if you Google that or you learn Hebrew, uh, or actually it's better this time because you can just read Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament, it talks at length about this guy. 
And it turns out, and we're told in Hebrews 7, or you can find it those other places too, that his name means king of righteousness. Melchi, Malcha is uh, king, Zedek is righteousness. There you go, you've learned some Hebrew tonight. And this king of righteousness guy, where is he the king of? He's the king of Salem. Now that's later going to become Jerusalem. But again, Hebrews 7 tells us that Salem means peace. It's a variant of the, the Jewish word today, shalom, the blessing of peace. You wish shalom on someone's house. So Melchizedek's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. And, and what's he like? Well, he's extremely kind and generous, isn't he? he? His people weren't captured. His land wasn't touched by the rampaging army. And yet he goes out of his way to meet Abram on his way back home and he brings bread and wine. But he's far more than just bringing bread and wine because he's also described, and you might have missed it, he's described as a priest of the Most High God. And that's interesting for several reasons. God's never been called that before. And I think it's as the world descends into the stupidity of polytheism following the destruction of the Tower of Babel, here's one guy that knows the truth. That there is only one true and living God who is above all the gods, the so-called gods of the nations. He's the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's the one who spoke the world into being. And he's the very same God, he acknowledges, that is the one who gave Abram the victory in battle. And he doesn't just know God, he serves God as a priest. In fact, this is the first time the word priest turns up in the Bible. And priest is a very highly significant term, particularly in the Old Testament. He's the first priest. But what is a priest? Well, a priest is someone who represents God to man and represents man to God. A priest is someone who stands in between, one who brings the word of God and the blessings of God to people and, and one who brings the sacrifices of the people and the prayers of the people to God for their forgiveness and cleansing. And even more interesting is that he is both priest and king, something that no one else in the whole Bible is. Well, that's not quite true. No one except Jesus, who Hebrews 7 says Melchizedek is the forerunner of. In Psalm 110, God makes a promise to his servant, King David, who was the greatest king that Israel would ever have in worldly terms. And he says to King David, I'm going to bring to you, David, a king. You are the king and you're going to have a king. A king who's going to crush all of his enemies. A king who's going to have victory over everyone who opposes him. But this king is also going to happen to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, in, in the same kind of way as Melchizedek. God promises David and he promises to us a great king who can save us and rescue us and rule us properly. At the same time, he's going to be a priest. He's going to be able to deal with our sin and make us right with God. And he's going to be bringing all the blessings of God. And of course, that king is Jesus Christ. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. But he's also the great high priest, the only high priest who's ever been effective in dealing with us and God. 
He's not like other regular high human priests who, who have to offer sacrifices again and again and again for the sins of the people, offering up animals as sacrifices and burnt offerings, which, which never do the job. As millions of animals died almost for nothing, not, not completely for nothing because they point to Jesus, but they died without ever helping anyone be forgiven. And he's a priest who's so great that he offers only one sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself once and for all time. And it truly works. The sacrifice of himself on the cross. Indeed, that is the way that he brings the blessings of God to us. He brings the true rescue, the true salvation. Not, not the rescue from captivity to invading armies. Not rescue from unjust situations or from financial hardship. But he brings salvation from death and sin and hell as he lays down his life as an offering to God in our place. Which makes Jesus, if you read Hebrews, it makes Jesus the mediator of a better covenant. A better covenant, and that's significant because God made a covenant with Abraham. And this is a better covenant with someone greater making it bringing in effect a covenant is a deal it's a far better deal than any other deal you can get in this world be it religious or secular jesus who is the only giver of true hope choices have consequences abram had a choice to make was he going to throw in his lot with the king of righteousness who happened to be the king of peace who happened to be the priest of the most high god or would he do what his idiot nephew did and throw in his light with the son of evil and the degenerate nation that he led? Now, it would have been easy money for Abram. In fact, it would have been the wealth of nations. What would you give if you could guarantee to win the lottery? What would you give up? That's, and that's nothing compared to what Abram's offered. The wealth of five nations, a king's ransom. But what did he choose? What will you choose? To throw in your lot with Jesus or to throw in your lot with the world which is perishing and heading towards disaster and destruction because of its evil? Because you actually can't do both. Jesus himself said as much. We saw it a few weeks ago when we were doing Mark. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, looking around, I don't know what specific choices you are facing at this very moment, at this point in time in your life. I know some of them, uh, whether about wedding decorations. <laughs> Whether your choices are about retirement or about marriage or about relationships or about having kids or decisions about work. Maybe you've got decisions about home. Maybe it's about decorating. Maybe you've got to make decisions about your hobbies. Maybe there's decisions you've got to make about alcohol or about who you associate with or about whether you're going to do the dodgy deal that the boss wants. 
But one thing I know is that beneath every single one of those choices lies this greatest choice which we're continually faced with in life. Are you in it with Jesus, the King of righteousness, the King of peace, the priest of God who alone gives the blessings of God? Or are you in with the world in opposition that's heading towards destruction? You've got to make a choice. You've got to continually make that choice. And choices have consequences. Our Father, we do thank and praise you for your word. Even when it's got weird names and obscure bits, we thank you for the challenge. And thank you that uh, you help us to work through when we concentrate and, and do the work. You show us profound things about what you are like, about even your son, the Lord Jesus, the great priest and king who we need, the one who brings all the blessings of God. Father, we pray that you would help us to be those people who not just once but always make the choice to throw our lot in with him, the one who is the King and Saviour and the true giver of blessing, the Lord Jesus. Father, please take our hearts from the, uh, the temptations which uh, call us away from him. Help us to see them as the lies that they are. Help us to have true affection for our Lord and Master. Help us to love him more than anything else. And we pray that we would have, like Abram, the faith to say no to wrong and yes to Jesus. But Father, thank you that you are merciful and he has offered the sacrifices that no other priest could make and you've brought forgiveness and life. Father, we pray for our community. Please turn it from its evil. We pray that it would not be like Sodom anymore. Father, please bring it salvation. Please turn the hearts, the minds, the wills of those living around us to you, not just for their good, but for your glory and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate. Amen.